thank you, Michael Laval, for doing this. Um, Welcome. First of all, cinematographer, writer, director, which, which, <laughs> which one do you prefer to go by? Um, depends on which side of the bed I get out of. I okay. think it's, it's um, yeah, I, I, in Ireland, filmmaking is a small industry and it's probably quite hard to get away with um, doing a couple of roles because okay. people like to think of you as one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's easier for you to get work and it's easier for them to think, oh, that's what you do? Okay, fine. So, um, originally when I started out in film, I mean, I just wanted to make films and I didn't really think about it. Then I went to film school and um, when I went to film school, I was already had been writing for years. Um, just small things myself. I didn't even dream of becoming a filmmaker, but I was writing and even probably writing film. I was writing films, but <laughs> I didn't think I could be a filmmaker because, well, I'm from Navin and it's a small town and filmmakers come from Hollywood. <laughs> so so <laughs> I yeah. couldn't make that leap. I know, yeah. um, so when I did, did um, eventually go and, 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 try and say, right, I'm going to be a filmmaker, I, I didn't really know what the roles were. Um, I had been making little short films myself since I was about six years old um, on my dad's Super 8 camera, so I was just making films and I just do whatever it did, you know, whatever it took. But um, so, in answer to your question, yeah, I'm kind of all three, and as long as I can get away with it, I'll keep doing that. <laughs> um, so, um, so, you went to film school. Was that, was that the. Was that your entry into this? Um, well, like I say, when I was about uh, six or seven years old, I, 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 had a, I had a really funny experience with film because, um, I mean, it's funny, Star Wars, the new Star Wars films about to come out, and my original love of film was I, I was brought to Superman and bread knob, bed knobs and broomsticks when I was about five. And um, I was five and a half, and I just was mesmerized I was compl- I, I bought a red coat and bought a red bicycle and used to ride up and down the road with the with just the hood on my head and the coat streaming out behind me thinking okay I am Superman and um, jumping off the back wall and all that kind of stuff but um, um, this feels like a very tangential way to, no, <laughs> to no, answer no, no, it's, it's okay good. tangential is good okay that's the kind of way we are okay then I'm fine um, <laughs> um, okay, yeah, so, um, so I was just became, I, I just absolutely loved those films and um, they just kind of opened up a world of wonder to me. And um, so the, the first time I ever went, yeah, those two times I went to the cinema and by, brought by my aunt and it just blew my mind. And then I had a friend in primary school who was from the United States and he arrived, he sat beside me on the first day of primary school and he had these incredible toys um, and they were little Star Wars figurines, and I'd never seen Star Wars, never heard of Star Wars. But he started telling me the stories, start the story of Star Wars, and he had obviously seen the film. But I became completely obsessed with it, even though I'd never seen the film. And I used to play Star Wars with him at lunchtime and get him to tell me the story again, tell me the story again, tell me the story again. So I, even though I'd never seen the film, I'd imagined it a million, billion times um, in a child's eyes with the figurines and that's how I had seen Star Wars before I ever saw it. Um, and then I actually didn't get to see it until my parents somehow managed, my parents brought me to see Jaws when I was about seven, 
and it totally terrified me. Um, and it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. And then I, I got to, they booked, somehow managed to bring me up to Dublin, which was a big, to go to Big Schmuck when you were a kid, um, to see the, the opening night of Empire Strikes Back when that came out. And that was big for me. And then, and then eventually I got to see Star Wars. But, um, so that, I was kind of obsessed with movies from that age. And my dad then got a Super 8 camera from my mum. And um, one day he put it down and I picked it up. And I never put it down after that. You know, it was kind of my camera. <laughs> and I just started making stop motion animation films with little Star Wars figurines. And I would cut in camera and I would interact live action with that. So I made like, you know, I cut out, <laughs> so I cut out like, um, I put out black plastic bags all around the wall of the living room and then got the Christmas lights and poked them through the back of it so it would be like stars against the black sky. And then, <clears throat> Um, got my dad <laughs> to to uh, uh, screw about ten light bulbs on a on a stick, so I had a light source. Um, so I had kind of one big stick with about ten ten you know sixty watt light bulbs tied strapped to it, and you could plug it in, plug it out. That was it. And then um, and I had this super eight camera, and then I would I built out of cardboard like say the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, and I would sit in it and then film myself pretending to fly the Millennium Falcon, and then cut in stop motion action of the Millennium I had a toy Millennium Falcon, so I would stop motion action that, like attacking a rebel base or something. And then I would you know, pause it in midair and cut out a piece of orange fluorescent cardboard and put it in for two frames, from the guns down to the ground, and then take it away, and then put in um, a cut out explosion on the ground for two frames, and then put in a larger explosion on the ground for two frames, and then a larger explosion on the ground for two frames, just out of cut out paper. So it looks like the explosion mm -hmm. gets bigger. Yeah. Um, and I just edited in camera and made those little films. And, um, and where did you learn to do, like what age were you? At this? I started at six, and I did it from about the age of about six till eight or nine. Why did you learn to like edit and do this sort of thing? I didn't. I didn't. I mean, it's just. It was just like, well, I need to see that, and then when the spaceship's flying up, I want to see who's in it. Well, I'm going to be in it, so I would just sit. And, I would just do it. It was just that childlike kind of. Yeah, thing. just play. Yeah. It's like kind of. I, I. I. It's like those Michel Gondry films. I'm going. Oh my god, that's my guy. Like, yeah, you know, okay. it's like just cut the stuff up, stick it up. It doesn't matter if it's crappy. It's it's the idea, and once you get into it, then it's fine. You know, and obviously, I mean, you get it as close as you can. But it's the spirit of it that was the yeah. most important thing, and the kind of heart of it, you know. And when you eventually saw Star Wars, uh, how different was it from? <laughs> um, I, I mean, it was so bad. I was like, uh, I remember the day it was coming on that evening on on on. I still have the because I videotaped it off the television, so yeah. I still have it with those really bad ITV ads, mm -hmm. um, with like um, the, I remember there was a guy from a comedy show, and he was bringing um. He was bringing his daughters on a camping trip and they were trying to market the new Toyota or something. I don't even know if it was a Toyota, it was a new car anyway. And he goes, um, and she goes, Daddy, does, um, does your car stereo, is there a new car, a stereo in our car? And the dad goes, yes, but it doesn't play Duran Duran. <laughs> and like all those really terrible ads are in the middle of this version of Star Wars that I recorded. But when I recorded it, I remember it starts, somehow the beginning of the recording didn't work. And it, the film only started from the oil bath of C-3PO. So it was like a load of fuzzy stuff because it was all those bad VHS tapes <laughs> back in the 80s. And then it's this, all this fuzzy stuff of C of at the beginning, you just can't see anything. And then it's like 
C-3PO taking an oil bath. So I watched the movie, I don't know, a couple hundred times, but always from that point. <laughs> Somehow I didn't take the beginning, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so did it live up to my expectations? Yeah, I mean, totally blew my yeah. mind. Completely blew my mind. Completely blew my mind. Um, so within that, were you always going to go to film school? Was that kind of a... Absolutely thing? not. No. Um, never even thought, never even thought I could be a filmmaker. Never, ne- never crossed my mind that I could be a filmmaker. So... I, I mean, I... I um, I always did plays in school and I acted in plays and wrote stuff and all that kind of stuff and it was just the thing I loved doing. Yeah. You know, that was kind of like, that's what I loved doing. And then I was like, and then there's real life, yeah. you know? And in real life, um, I was, um, I liked sports um, and I was, um, I was going to say I was really good academically. That's not true. My sister was really good academically. And I was jealous. <laughs> and I, she'd come back and I'd get like B's and C's, which were all fine. But my sister was like all straight A's, always. And like she'd get an A minus or something and she'd be like, yeah, I did, didn't really study for that one. Or, you know, or, now she was really hardworking and very, very intelligent. So, um, you know, killer combination. <laughs> um, but I, I kind of just felt bad when I'd come in with these kind of B's and C's all the time. So I remember in second year of secondary school, I said, F this, I'm going to work hard and I can get A's and I worked, that, I think that year I worked like the hardest that I worked for some reason and I started getting like really good A grades and stuff and that, from that point on I kind of thought of myself as being really academic okay. and then I fell in love with books at about the age of 16 and I read loads and loads and loads um, but still never thought that I could be a filmmaker and then I went, I got a scholarship to Canada for two years to work uh, what's called the United World College which is, it was, um, it was an academic scholarship and the college was set up to design, to promote peace and international understanding between nations. Okay. So it's an incredibly unique place. Um, I was saying it's unique, but there are about eight of them around the world, but they're all different. Mm-hmm. But um, these United World Colleges, and I, I went to this one, it was named after Lester Pearson, who was the Prime Minister of Canada back in the 70s, and um, he won the Nobel Prize for Peace. And they set it up after him and... Um, yeah, basically there were 100 students in my year and we were f- selected from 80 countries around the world and we spent two years studying together. I mean, there were like people from, you know, abject poverty and people from incredible wealth because everybody was there on an academic scholarship. So it was all sorts, but yeah, we studied together for these two years. And what were you studying? Well, I finished my Leaving Cert here and then I went and I studied what was the International Baccalaureate, the IB. <clears throat> so it's like the French back but with an international angle and you've got a massive variety of subjects you can do and also so I, I did six subjects there it's a little bit like doing the leaving cert again but also like maybe a bit more advanced because you, you have to take three it's a bit more like A levels because you have to take three higher level subjects so um, and to begin emphasis on them so I did that even though I had my leaving cert just because it was such an incredible opportunity to study with these people from all around the world and experience their culture and I did philosophy there and yeah I was I mean my mind was open to philosophy there because I went there and I ended up in a conversation with them on the first evening I I went for dinner and I ended up in a random conversation with this old dude with a beard (laughs) and we were chatting away blah 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 blah. and then the next day I went in to the the head of academics and it turned out that he was the head of academics and he kind of politely insisted that I did philosophy and I was like look I, I have no interest in philosophy um, and he says, okay, well, look, 
do any, you know, just do it for a week. And if you don't like it, come back to me and I'll give you whatever course you want. And I was like, okay, now I got you. Perfect. So I thought I'd win for the week and I'll go back and I'll ask him exactly what I want. I went in for the first class and I couldn't walk out the door. It was amazing. Really, I was like, oh my God, we're allowed to get grades for talking and thinking about this stuff. This is the stuff that's on in my mind, but I didn't know people talked about yes, this stuff. Yeah. You know, it's so mind bending when you're that age. Yeah. So then, and then, and then I left there and I really didn't know what I wanted to do because probably what I wanted to do was make films, but that still so didn't so seem like a real thing. And when I was there, I wrote plays and acted in, in plays and stuff and still never thought I could do it. Like, I didn't think it was a job. Um, so I left there and I applied for politics, philosophy and economics in Brasenose College in Oxford. And I applied for medicine in Edinburgh University and I applied for law in UCC. <laughs> and <laughs> so I know I took like complete scatterbrain. Like I know I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I opted for I didn't get the Oxford. And I got an interview, but I didn't get the I didn't get the place. And it was one of those things, was probably the the thing that you know, it broke my heart at the time because I was like, ooh, Oxford, wow, it's gonna be so amazing. And um, I totally fluffed the interview. I mean, I completely fluffed it. It was, I was terrible. And I came out going, oh my God, what did I say in there? But anyway. Unless it's just nerves. Yeah, it was totally, I mean, I didn't sleep the night before and I'd just flown in from Canada to do the interview. And it was like, it was Oxford. And I was like, oh my God. And I was a bit overwhelmed. Um, but I, it was actually the luckiest thing that never happened to me. <laughs> but it's so funny, like those times when, yeah. 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 I'd be, I'd be kind of grey and bookish now if I did that. Well, I don't know if I would, well, be, but you know, I would yeah. be more certainly. But you look back on something that you really wanted a couple of months later, and something else has happened, and yeah. wouldn't have happened. If, yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah. So I mean, I did law. I, I did law in UCC, um, and loved it. Really enjoyed it. Um, I had fantastic professors there. Um, great friends. Um, and it was so interesting um, and there was a certain aspect of law that really excited me I mean I really loved jurisprudence and um, I really liked criminal law and actually company law I really liked <laughs> I liked the idea of being utterly ruthless in a company law firm um, and then I, I also kind of was interested in becoming a barrister now whether I've been any good at any of those things I'm not sure but um, I, that's kind of what I thought of and then I I was lining myself up to do that and I, I finished law school and um, a girl I was going out with at the time um, wanted to go to London for the summer. So I was like, okay, well, the summer, that's just the summer and then I can come back and be a lawyer <laughs> or be a barrister or whatever. And um, I, I, I went to London with her and um, I worked in terrible jobs, you know, I worked in... Uh, uh, lots of bars and with, with alcoholic Irish owners um, where I'd have to pick them up off the floor at about 11.30 in the morning um, and try and run the bar myself. And then I worked in, a, in a, an Italian restaurant and I worked in a really big mega Irish bar in London. Um, and where were you living in London? I lived, I lived um, just off Brick Lane before it was cool. <laughs> it was when it was twilight actually. Um, it, it was... Um, yeah, it was just off Brick Lane, um, and I was the only white person in the building. Was everybody else was Bangladeshi, and um, but it was a really wonderful community. They were really, really. I mean, I kind of just um, 
I, they couldn't speak really much English, the, the people I was surrounded by, and I couldn't speak any knowledge of their language, my language, but I, I am, uh, the kids were really friendly, and you kind of just have laughs at them and, you know, throw stuff and all that, but they were just, and they were very nice and really. And so I lived there, and I lived in Bethnal Green, and I lived in Hackney, so I kind of bounced around a little bit. Um, and actually, this was just over a summer. That was just over a summer. Well, no, no, I st- no, sorry. Actually, what happened was I, st- I was just be supposed to be there for summer. Then the girl I was dating, <laughs> I was, suddenly wasn't dating anymore. And then she went back to Ireland and I actually just said, this is great, I love it here, I'm going to stay. So I kind of stayed on for a year, kind of going, and, my, and kind of going, hmm, what am I doing here? Well, actually, what happened was a friend of mine who I had been to college in Canada with, who was the year ahead of me in Canada, uh, David Duan, he was, he's now a professor in, in Belfast University and he asked me to get him a book. It was, it was The Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelard and he couldn't get it in Ireland and he said, there's this bookstore in London and it's like really amazing so can you get check it there and maybe it's there. So it turned out to be Foyle's bookstore on Cherry Cross Road. So I wandered in off the street on my lunch break from this terrible Italian restaurant where I was working. Um, and uh, I wandered in and the ground floor was like just a regular ground floor you know it had kind of novels and all that kind of stuff and then the second floor was a little bit messy it was kind of history and uh, French and stuff like that on the second floor and then the third floor was kind of what you kind of call a bohemian bookstore it was a little bit hippie-ish Um, uh, the books were a little bit scattered and you know people were quite chatty and friendly the staff there and stuff and then by the time we got to the fourth floor it was it was chaos it was utter chaos and I went in there and there was a group of people standing around a table I remember and they're having a discussion and they're having this discussion in a way that nobody was dominating the conversation they were all massively engaged and invested in it but everybody was listening to what everybody else was saying. So, they, and they were kind of all really interesting, had interesting perspectives, but nobody was trying to dominate the conversation. We were just trying to learn from each other and figure something out. And actually, to this day, I can't remember what the conversation was about. I just remember going, oh my God, what an incredible conversation. And I was like, this is a conversation group. I need to kind of hang out with these guys or whatever. And one by one, they all broke away from it and went back to buying books on the shelves. And I realized this is not a conversation group. This is just a random group of people who who should buy books here. And this is a conversation that's just broken out spontaneously. And there were two guys sitting behind the desk there. One of them had his feet on the table. And uh, I was going, oh my God, they work here. And they were part of that conversation. I want that job. So I just said to them, you guys work here? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I, I need to work here. This is amazing. And one of the guys said to me, oh, that guy's leaving in two weeks. Why don't you hand in your CV? So I handed in my CV and Mrs. Foyle was, I think, 93 at the time. And I, so I must have been one of the last people interviewed by her. But I went in about four or five days later and did an interview with her. It didn't last terribly long. I think it was like 15 minutes. Um, really interesting woman. She was, at the time, I think she was the second richest woman in England after the Queen. Um, she had a letter from Hitler in her in her. Uh, that was kind of, uh, asking him not to burn the books to send them over to her that she'd sell them um, and she had a, an original painting by Miro I remember in the hallway and I was just like oh, 
oh my god it's like yeah but anyway went in with her and just had a chat with her and she was just really nice just had a kind of a random wandering conversation with her and then at the end of it she just said um, what department do you want to run and I went philosophy psychology eastern religion and she goes okay it's yours I was like brilliant so I stayed for a year yeah so I stayed for a year and I read all the and I had really enjoyed law but I had studied really hard at the end and kind of messed my brain up a little bit in the way I think Irish people do when we're studying for exams maybe that's universal um, but I felt I had abused my Yeah, well, I mean, it was a funny kind of thing. It's like I went. I went through the leaving cert, mm -hmm. and for the leaving cert, you're told this is kind of a very much kind of regurgitate, regurgitate, and if you regurgitate very well, you can do very well. Now, I know there are questions that hopefully separate the sheep from the lambs in those kind of exams, but a lot, a lot of much of the stuff is it feels like regurgitation or process and I mean I think it's really really important that you're very good at that I think it's it's given me invaluable tools that I brought forward but um, in terms of creativity and in terms of appreciating those kind of things we just don't do it terribly well um, and I, I think there's a nice dance to be had between creativity and hard work and I, I don't know if we quite have the balance um, so I, I came, and, and I certainly, I mean, it's not the system so much as well as the person who's involved in the system. So I know that my approach to studying was quite poor in that I worked way too hard and disappeared into a rabbit hole. But I tend to be quite obsessive when I do something. So I almost kind of, almost kind of lost my mind a little bit, in a way, like, because, I mean, I remember being so rigid about my timings of how long I was going to study for and how long I would walk away from the room for to make sure I was getting fresh air and it's like it's like a little bit you know OCD and I don't even know if OCD is the word like it's just I became in this I got into this routine and I felt like okay I'm really getting on top of it but I memorized so much stuff and drilled it into my brain I just I, I don't think I have that kind of brain like it's just being really honest like it took so much work for me to memorize all that kind of stuff and you know I can do it but I had to, I memorized like all, like loads of law cases by drawing pictures. And I'd have to draw all these pictures and these became really abstract drawings. So I had these really crazy drawings. And it was like, and then when I would try and think about the legal cases involved, I would picture these drawings that I had done. And I would know, oh, the bird on the tree, that's bird versus whatever. Or, you know, it's like, so it was just like, well, so, so it was just trying to put my brain into this kind of thing. Um, and, and I, I'd done it for four years and I just and even done it for the Leaving Cert and done it again in, in Pearson College where you're trying to memorize things. Um, but even I guess in Pearson one of the things was I mean we'd go into class and beforehand the classes were quite small. But for philosophy, for example, our lecturer would we could, I mean she was a teacher but the lecturer or whatever would give us a series of readings and everybody was so fully engaged that you'd go home, you'd read the stuff out of pure fascination. You'd come in the next day, and you wouldn't read it, and you wouldn't do an exam on it. You'd just discuss it. Yeah. So, the information was just taken for granted. There's what Ifiani Menkiti thinks about, you know, 
human interaction or whatever. Here's what Emmanuel, you know, Kant thinks about, you know. So you read these kind of things, and then you come in the next day, and everybody else is equally informed as you, and a group of smart and passionate people discussing something for 45 minutes is not a thing you forget quickly. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then the reading and the philosophy. Yeah, so basically I got to, I got to kind of read all those books that you're kind of going like I kind of been always see when I when I wanted to apply for the scholarship to this United World College um, I had a wonderful um, headmaster Mr. Whiteside uh, in Wilson's Hospital where I went to secondary school and his wife uh, who was the headmistress of the school um, said to me uh, you know I, I applied for the interview and I got the interview and I, I was stunned that I even got the interview so I was really happy I had to go up to Trinity College here in Dublin to do it which was a big deal like you know when you're 16 and then um, boom went to Trinity College to do this interview for this scholarship and I was just so happy I got the interview like I was like wow that's even good um, and I went up and the first time I did it tw I, I did it one year and um, I remember I remember getting a suit and putting on a suit and really feeling uncomfortable in my skin and going up and doing it and feeling like I was at this horrible thing. So the next year, I didn't get it that year. And then the next year, actually David Dwan got it that year, <laughs> the guy who I bought the book for in Oxford, late, or the book, for, the book for later in Foils. But um, the next year, when it came around again, I went, God, I'd love to just apply for that thing again. I think if I just went as myself. So I... I I applied for it and um, the person who was in charge of the program, I phoned her up and I said, can I please apply? And she says, well, you know, um, the applications have closed. And I was like, oh God, and I was so heartbroken. She says, but actually I'm sick at the moment. So I'm gonna delay the application process by a week. So why don't you get your application into me? And I was, I was like, it was like God opened a door or something, you know, it was just like, okay thank you and I hung up the phone I was like okay so I wrote out the application form and I didn't care um, they, they had to ask they asked you why do you want to go what do you want to achieve there and what do you want to give to the people there I can't remember what I wrote but I just wrote really from the heart mm -hmm. instead of trying to write the answers I thought they wanted I just because I'd done that the first time so I just wrote this is this is me boom and I put that down and then um, I got the interview again so I was really excited and I went, this time I, a friend of mine had a jumper and I remember it was a big woolly light brown jumper with a yin yang symbol on the front. I didn't know what yin yang was at the time, but I, I just really liked the jumper. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I had a pair of kind of dark blood red jeans and I was like, they're cool. And I was like, that's me. So I borrowed his jumper and I wore my jeans and I, I actually slept in on the morning of the interview and my headmaster came up and woke me up at four o'clock in the morning because I had to get a train, I had to get a bus from Mullingar. He came up and woke me out of bed. And I was, because I was studying at the time, and because um, it was the leaving cert year, so I was really sleepy. And I, but he, he woke me up, and um, he sent me, he dropped, drove me down to the trains, just to the bus station in Mullingar, which was into town at like half four in the morning or something. Like really incredible. Like the man's passed away since, so kudos to him, um, Mr. Whiteside. But um, I remember we got to Mullingar, and the bus was pulling out of the bus station. And Mr. Whiteside was the most proper man you've ever met. And he drove that thing like Keanu Reeves and swerved it out in front of the bus that was pulling out of the bus station and stopped the bus from pulling out of the bus station by blocking it with our... He drove me in our school bus. 
with me and him in our school bus. And it was one of those big old yellow crappy things that you yeah. see in American movies. Yeah. We had, we call it the yellow submarine because it looked like the kind of, you know the way the, the shape of the yellow submarine? Yeah. One of those kind of, you know, 70s buses. And it was painted bright yellow. Or no, kind of a deep yellow, like a really nice yellow. So um, he swerved that in front of the... <laughs> he swerved it in front of the... Um, uh, the, 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 the bus going to Mullingar and said get in get in get in so I jumped out of the thing and ran in got on the bus and then I came up and I was so tired I went in and I needed I, I, I went <laughs> I went to the loo in Bewley's on because on, on, I got there so early in the morning and the interview wasn't until like it was the full day of interviews to get it but the interviews wasn't started until later in the day so I went in and I went to the loo and I fell asleep on the loo <laughs> I was so tired and then I ran up but I ran up and I got to the thing at the interview and I remember running in the door of the interview and Paul Colton who uh, later became the Bishop of Cork um, was actually a previous student of the college and a previous graduate of UCC um, law school so um, who had basically was my predecessor and he, he was running the, the interviews that day and he stood at the front he stood at the door you know he stood at the thing and I ran in the door and it's like maybe two minutes past eight o'clock or whatever time it's supposed to be starting and he said one thing we don't appreciate here is uh, you know tiredness or something and he said something like it was just it was he, he said it in a very gentle way but I knew it was obviously directed at me um, and but um, I was like oh my god I've really blown my chances here but um, I, I did the whatever four or five interviews there were during the day and um, yeah, that's got, got a tough place. interview process in one day it was it was it was it was it was it was an incredible interview pro it was really really strange because they had one i remember i'm not knowing what the process was but actually what happened was it was kind of one academic interview one interview where i remember we were sitting with a psychologist and there was a group of about 8 or 9 of us sitting around in a circle and we went through this thing of like he did all these kind of exercises with us and we didn't know what was going on like and he kind of would say to us um okay, what you're going to do is now you're going to talk to the person beside you for five or ten minutes and afterwards, no, for f say five minutes and afterwards, then you talk to the person to your left or something and then you have to tell us, or they, then they, you ask them questions and then they ask you questions and then what happens is afterwards you have to come back and tell us about that person. Oh, that's, that's... They're like, yeah, acting exercises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention, yeah. So, so there was an uneven, there was, it was divided into three different groups. And our group, the third group, was, there was maybe nine or ten, there was nine people or eleven people. And it was an uneven number. So, um, it's so funny, I haven't thought about this in ages, but the, 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 everybody, he paired everybody up. And then it was out of people and I was on my own. And I was going, oh shit, what's happening? And then he says, okay, you're going to have to do it with me. And I was going, oh no, this guy's like some psychologist. And when you're 16 and you think you're having a conversation with a psychologist, you're going, he can, it's like they, you think they've got like x-ray specs and they can see your brain, like, <laughs> so you're totally terrified of what you're saying to him. So, um, we were, sorry, are you going to say something? No, no, not at all. Yeah, but um, it was like really strange. He, he, he sat in front of me and he kind of, um, I remember he had a really strange tie on and I was like, wow, that is a really nice tie. And then um, he says, oh, you know what? He said, that's, it's funny you say that because actually that's a tie that was given to me by the first patient I ever treated. And I was like, oh my God, wow. And I, and I said, you still wear it? He said, yeah, I wear it kind of on special occasions. And, da, da, da. and he started telling me the story of how he had got into become a psychologist and how he treated this guy in his relationship with it. Now, he didn't give me details, obviously, because he was mouth, but he told me kind of around, you know, yeah. and, and how much it meant to him. 
and then suddenly our five minutes were up and I went oh like I was supposed to have asked him his age how many brothers and sisters he had where he was from I knew nothing and it went around and then and then he asked me about myself and I told him all the stuff or whatever whatever he asked and then it went around the group and everybody was like well John is 16 years old and he's born and they told all this like massive reams of information about somebody and it came around to my turn and I was like and I said, look, I said, I've been talking to him for five minutes. I forgot to ask him all that stuff, but I can tell you about his tie. And I just told the story of his tie. <laughs> so it was like, it was those kind of like weird, yeah. you know, kind of like, and now I look back at it and go, well, I actually had a conversation with him. Yeah, and you were kind of liberated from the rules, if you like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, at the time, I thought I had totally failed, disastrously. But, um, yeah, it was... Yeah, it was just, and I remember having a really horrible, m most horrible interview with Paul Colton. Because um, <laughs> I went in and he had my application form and he held it like it was a turd. And I remember it was a really long, thin room, a little bit like the room we're in now. But um, he was sitting behind a table at one far end of the room. And when I went in the door, he was sitting at a chair behind his desk um, at one end of the room. And at the far end, just when you open the door, there was a, a chair that the door almost banged off. So you come inside the door and your chair is down this end of the room and he's off up there at the far end of the room and you're like going, and the room is really narrow and thin, like a broom closet or something, like a long thing. You could kind of almost stretch your arms out and touch the two walls. Like it was really weird room, like kind of like this room, you know, a little bit wider. But, um, and I went, that's really weird. And I, I remember just going, like, I just grabbed the chair and picked it up and walked straight up to the table and put it right there in front of him and had the conversation. I was like, I'm not going to sit down here and talk to you like that. So I don't know, I don't know what was going on there, but I remember he held my application form like it was a turd and like it was like the most disgusting thing he'd ever been handed and he just assaulted me, like assaulted me. He was, I mean, when I look back now, he's kind of saying, so what do you think of Ireland? And I'd say, well, I mean, I think Ireland's a really nice country. He says, you think we're nice, do you? He says, what's going, what, what's, going, what's going on in Northern Ireland? Do you think that's nice? And I was like, you're 16. I was going, well, you know, I mean, I said, you know, there's people who've, um, you know, there's a lot of history there. People who are acting out of hurt and da da da. And he got they're acting out of hurt. And he said, you think? And he basically everything I am, you know. Yeah. And he's so intelligent. It was terrifying. And like you're kind of coming up with your 16 year old answers to these questions, and he's like so brilliantly informed. And he's like a, you know. Yeah, he's annihilating everything, but you just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> you keep going, okay, here we're coming like from. Me blah, blah, blah. With my brother. So, so that was foils. That, that was, was yeah. something to do with foils. Oh my um. god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I, I went there and then I came back, I did law, and then I ended up in foils. And then um, when I was in foils, I'd already got a law degree. And um, three different, th and I was, I read all the books that I kind of wanted to read and I kind of scrubbed my brain clean. And just by reading the things I wanted to read and having these incredible conversations with all these crazy people who came in and buy books and foils. And there is something, I think maybe, I think it happens to everyone, like college is brilliant and you, but there is kind of a regiment, there is a system that you have to conform to, yeah. that your brain conforms to. And it's really useful, but I think maybe there's a there's a reaction to that yeah. that you just kind of have to explode. You have to explode and yeah. let the air back in. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, actually. Um, that's a really good. And way I think that's natural. To yeah, it happens to most people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so film school. <laughs> Finally, I <laughs> get to film school. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <it's> taking. <okay. laughs>
No, yeah. no, it's fine. It's perfectly fine. Um, so film school, I, yeah, so then what happened was three different people who I'd known throughout my life. Um, one was living in New York. Um, uh, one was in England and the other was graduated from Japan. Sent me, one of them actually sent me an application form for NYU film school. And two, the two others all said to me, why don't you go to film school? And I was like, what? And until the three of them did it, all around the same time. And was this because like you would speak a lot about film? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like, even when I was in you know, college in Canada or whatever, and in my spare time, I'd be making films yeah. or, like, it was just what I did. But I didn't think it was a job. Like all the way through law school, I, my, all my spare time was making short films. And was that just because at the time, and I mean, it's still the case, but at the time it just wasn't kind of a, a career that was pitched as a career. So yeah, I mean, you're not going to go into a career guidance counsellor and say, I want to be a filmmaker, and they go, okay, go for it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't even know those courses in film. I, don't, I didn't even investigate it. I, the, look, even growing up as a kid in the 80s, Ireland was so economically depressed that you come out going, what I need is a job, and I need something that's going to give me some money. And then, when I've got some money, maybe I can do these things that I like to do. And that was the kind of logic. And like, so the thought of becoming a filmmaker was just so, was beyond the beyond. It was just so out of my, I mean, but my brain could not compute, you know, that it could even be possibility. And then... Did you ever like, but, but you must have known it was something you wanted to do, no? Did you just not? Yeah, I mean, when I was in film yeah. school, I wrote short films and applied for the, you know, the Irish Film Board's, you know, short film award, you know, to go and make short films and stuff like that. I, I, I spent, mo like, you know that kind of thing where you're studying, 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 and you become obsessed with something else, and you're going, I really should be studying. The thing I, became, the thing I was obsessed with was making films. So I would write screenplays in my spare time, and I'd say, right, I'm going to give myself half an hour today that I'm allowed to write a screenplay in, and that'll be my, like, free time. And I, in my free, all my free time, I'd be like writing scripts, yeah, um, and that was like my prize for doing the hard work, you know, studying. Yeah, okay. You know, so and I applied. I remember I wrote an American film called American Nat and sent it into the film board, trying to get money. <laughs> I didn't even know how to write a script, you know. I'm sure it wasn't even formatted properly. Like it was just, you know, this is a film, you know. I've got these ideas, da 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 da, da. Um, and uh, yeah, so like. Um, but I, I really wanted to do it, but I just didn't think I was allowed. Okay. And you know, I think we spend so much of our time looking for permission or, or thinking that there's a way you're supposed to be and that's what you conform to. And then, and that's just the way things are. But then, like three of my friends said, why don't you just go to film school, why don't you just go to film school? And I went, fuck yeah, why don't I just go to film school? And I was like, I was, it's like I was a genius. I finally figured out. So what I did was, I looked into, and I knew there's a really good film school in Ireland called Dunleary Institute of Arts and Technology, which is now the National Film School, and um, they only took I think twenty three people, twenty two people, or something at the time, twenty four, something like that. But they took a small number of people, and I was like, okay, that's hard to get into. If I get it in, the, if I get in there, I'll take that as a sign. And then they were like, you need a portfolio of photographs, you need to have a little short script written, you need, to, and they kind of had this stuff, and I know portfolio. So, working in foils was my portfolio year. So I wrote screen. I had some screenplays written from when I was in law school. And then I took photographs and foils and I had a little, bought a little crappy camera and took loads of photographs and actually I think it was an awful borrowed camera to, yeah. and I just took loads of photographs and became kind of a little bit obsessed with photography and then reading 
I was reading so much, and then I went and what to were you reading? Like, just anything? <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, sorry, sorry, I, the reason I actually started telling you about the, about the, um, the obsession yes. with reading before and the philosophy and stuff was because my headmistress, when I got the, when I got the interview for this, to go to Pearson College, when I, when I was told I was going to have an interview, she said, why don't you come up to me and I'll do a mock interview for you so you can see what it's like. Okay. And she knew one person who had got in before, so she sent me very kindly to him, and he talked to me as well. And I kind of did a little bit of a mock interview with him, so it was really nice. I mean, you know, she really went out of her way to try and give but me a But obviously chance. people had a lot of time for you, because they do that if they do that, yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah it was, yeah, it was really it's, good, I mean, yeah. it was really lucky, well, she had, she had worked with us on plays, and I had done drama with her, and I'd been kind of the lead actor in a couple of plays that she had directed in, when I was in secondary school, and um, we did the Westmead Drama Festival, and won a couple of prizes there, and stuff, and we'd done, like, lots of drama, and um, winner of the Westmead Drama Festival, and, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my god, oh my god, um, I did, I, I did two plays, I won, I did uh, a play by Constance Cox based on a short storyboard by Oscar Wilde called Lord Arthur Savile's Crime. And I played Lord, Ar Lord Arthur Savile. Okay. And I won, we won that one best play <laughs> in the Westmead Drama uh, Awards and, and I got best actor. These are not <laughs> so um, we did that, and that was that was great. And we did so we did lots of plays, and she was a re she was really great, fantastic, fantastic. And uh, you know, I mean, so many of the teachers throughout that I had, you know, kind of would have inspired that kind of thing of like go and do anything you want. And Wilson's was fantastic. Like, we did, because it was a boarding school, we did so many extracurricular activities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just poured my like, like at the first few weeks I went down there, I was like, mommy, I want to come home. And then like, you know. Six weeks in, I'm like, Mom, I ain't got time for this phone call. I'm going, I'm, you know, I've got a play to rehearse. I'm I'll going canoeing. You know, yeah, yeah, I'll see you at Christmas if there's no canoeing trip, you know. And it wasn't like we did fancy canoeing trips. It was just like one of the teachers built canoes. And any of the ones that didn't work out, he just donated them to school. So, so they had some canoes. Like, it wasn't posh or anything. It was just like, yeah. But it was just like a few, like, all you need is a canoe and a, and a, and a vest. And that's it. Like, so it's not like a fancy thing it's just like it was, it was it's fancy when you haven't done it before it was so yeah. exciting you know um, but yeah but um, she said to me during my interview with her she said what books have you read this is on mock interview and I was like oh well I've read and I started listing the books that I'd read which were pretty much the books that were on the junior cert <laughs> okay. and, and then things that I read that my sister had put down out of her hand you know um, in my childhood and she goes that's not you haven't really read any books then, have you? And I was like, well, I've read all those ones, and I like Garfield, and I like, you know, it's like, and she goes, oh my God. She goes, you can't go to this interview having read just that number of books. You're going to have to read more. And I was like, okay, and I really, really wanted, I really wanted to go to Pearson College. So she wrote me a list of books. She wrote me a list of 20 books and said, read them. Okay. And it was coming up to, I think it was Easter break, which is like two weeks or something, and I had two weeks. I think I read a book every two days. I just went home and I went to the library and I took out The Mill on the Floss and Scoop by Evelyn Waugh and um, 1984 and Brave New World and um, she gave me a list. <laughs> and, I, and, and it was Tess of the Durbervilles and, uh, oh, 
you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, a lot of classics. And Emma Jane, uh, sorry, Emma Jane. I read um, Jane Austen, but I read Pride and Prejudice and like a lot of those classics. And the first few you read, I was like, oh my God, this is doing my head in. Now, we had a brilliant English teacher, Jerry Eager, in, in the school who I credit with uh, absolutely with my love of English, but reading those books also. Just reading kind of beyond what you were supposed to read yeah. was, was a really rich process. And it gave me, an incre- I, like the first two or three books was like, I, I may as well have stabbed my eyes with them. You know, it was like so hard to read them because you're just not used to putting that much attention into reading English. this, yeah, the old English and the density of the text and the, the heaviness and stuff. And then when you, you get the richness of the story, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I, I read and read and read and I read most of those books then before the interview. And um, so at least I could go in and say, well, I've read all those. But actually, much more importantly than that, was because I become obsessed with books. So, um, which is not a great thing in your leaving cert year to be to, <laughs> to just suddenly become obsessed with reading books, <laughs> but when you don't want to read the ones that are on the curriculum. Um, but uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I just started. So then, when I went to Foils, I was like, <gasps> I had basically at one stage I found this book, and it was Aldous Huxley, I think it was, or Anthony Burgess had written a thing saying the hundred books you should read. And I really liked those two writers. I thought their work was amazing. So I thought, if this guy says these are good books, they're probably worth having a check out. Mm-hmm. So I, I copied down the list into a copy book and I started going through the list of 100 books that he said to read. Um, and I did that before foils, but I had a lot, I had a lot still to do. So I kind of did that list. <laughs> and then I, but obviously by the time I got to foils, I had much more sense of what I liked. Yeah. So I kind of, and also I wanted to read Ulysses because I had just been to college in, in, in Canada mm-hmm. and everybody's like, oh my God, you've read James Joyce's from? I was going, yeah, but I haven't read Ulysses. <laughs> so I was like, oh, oh man, i got to read that book. And did you? Yeah, I read it. But that was the thing. I, I, I was really embarrassed about reading it because I was like, oh my God, I can't be seen on the subway train reading it, Ulysses. Yeah. I look like such a wanker. So I remember I bought this kind of... Uh, the, I found a plastic cover for the book that was like fit exactly on it that was from a different book and I put it on it and then I put all this kind of Japanese stickers and shit on it so you didn't know what I was reading so was, I felt okay then reading that okay. so, but it took me a long time to read that book yes so then and I read the kind of students abridged version so I'd have some fucking clue of what's going on <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is about twice as thick again you know and you have to read and then turn back the page and go oh that reference is about that oh and that so it's a slow process and did you make sense of it? I made feeling of it. Okay. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I mean, the sense is there, I think. Um, it's, it's, it was a hard read, I think, even though I read quite a bit at the time. But I made f- sense in the sense of sense feeling. I think, I, I, I know Joyce kind of always wanted it to be read out loud and that made an awful lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. And it felt like... If you listen to Astro Weeks by, by, by Van Morrison, I think it's in the same kind of zone. Right, okay. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, okay, yeah. That's kind of my closest comparison. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah. It's, um, it's a... I suppose the, the classic phrase is the stream of consciousness sense of it, but it's actually, it's, it's about something really intense and it's really honestly trying to explore it and it's, I mean, really intelligent book. Probably much more intelligent than I am. <laughs> you know, but um, I think it's one of those books that it's, 
there you could probably read it again and get something very different mm-hmm. um, and I think um, it gives you what you need like you know like a really good song you'll come back to it you'll, you'll listen to it again and you hear oh that's what it's about now and, and I think I think it's like that you know I think it I think it responds to who you are at the time I read it in quite an academic way I think at the beginning and that's why I bought the students abridged version because I really wanted to know it and I read all these little books around it like you know other people who I thought were super smart you know expanding on the book so I could kind of understand what they thought was going on and what, what the richness was and to make sure I got it like I wanted to get it yeah. you know and that's the kind of way I attacked the beginning of the book but I, I, I think um, probably partially by being in foils and, and foils was kind of like a we used to call it Kafka's bookstore because it was so chaotically disorganised and yet that had its own form of organisation that you knew exactly what you were supposed to do but it was a crazy system um, and the, the characters who Mrs Foyle had picked to populate her bookstore were all really interesting people I'm not saying I was but they all were I felt like oh so I used to keep notes and write little things about them and stuff and they were kind of a really interesting group of misfits who I kind of look back on it now you could only work there for a year and then she kind of let you go um, and I kind of look back on it now and I think what she was trying to do was trying to give a kind of a safe haven to people who were kind of floating and, and were trying to find their feet on planet earth and felt they were kind of on some treadmill and wanted to kind of be off the treadmill and she let you get off the treadmill for a year and read all you wanted and you couldn't get fired she'd never fire you you could say anything you wanted to a customer because she kind of went well, I've hired you because I think you're a trustworthy person and you're not rude and you're not whatever. So if you say anything rude to a person, it's because they deserve it. or and I, Not that you would say something rude, but nobody ever got in trouble for anything. The only thing she fired you for was being late. So there was that kind of integral trust from her and that kind of had an energy about the place, which meant that people could be who they wanted to be. You could be yourself. You didn't have to be a polite person working in a bookstore. You know that kind of thing of... Um, playing the gestalt of somebody like you don't have to play you know like if you're working in a restaurant you play the gestalt of the waiter you know hello sir can you please have a seat yeah. you know yeah. you didn't have to play the gestalt of a bookstore worker you just had to be Michael hanging out in the bookstore and like I'll help you if you're looking for a book you know and you'd have engage people on a human level mm-hmm. instead of on the level of you're a person buying a book and I'm an yeah. employee here now you did the job of an employee because you knew that was your role but you engage people as people so sorry, I didn't, where are we going with this? Oh, no. <laughs> but that was it. So, I love so, that book story. So it's really it's interesting incredible. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, the, I mean, really great bunch of. I mean, you couldn't cast that bookstore. Like it was incredible. And is it still? It's, it's the year I was. The year I was there, Mrs. Foyle passed away. Okay. So I, that's what I was saying. I was would have been would have been one of the last people she employed. Is um, it still in the Foyle family? It is. I think it's her nephew who has it now. And he's he's modernised it, and I yeah, they done. have, and, and that's recent because yeah. it's it's now a lot tidier. Than well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the the top floor, the books were stacked vertically when I went into that room. They weren't in alphabetical order. I mean, there was piles of books all over the floor, and you had to step, you had to wade through them going into that department. It was just chaos. 
but it was kind of brilliant chaos. Though, yeah, and you just yeah. go in there and you just trip it over a book and you're like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and like people come in and say, have you got this book? And it might be like 60 years old. And you're saying, wait a second, that's got a kind of a green cover, doesn't I it? That the other yeah, day. I kicked it the other day. You know, exactly. I was using it to hold the door open the other day. And they're like, my God, that's a classic. It's only like, I can't find it. I've been looking for a copy for like 10 years. Because it was kind of just at the pre Amazon yeah. internet time. Yeah. So that's where everybody from around the world would come to find books that they couldn't find anywhere else. So it was kind of a mecca for books. It's an incredible place to work and just an incredible place to be as a human being, yeah. as an interested reader and lover of books and just, just. It sounds like an amazing year. So it was an amazing year. It was an amazing year. Yeah. Amazing year. Um, so, so yeah, so finally you get to film school. Oh my god, sorry, this is such a crazy word. It's fine, totally fine. So yeah, um, okay, so you can edit all that no, bit and then no, we can just you can no, start the whole no, thing just here. No, 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 no it's fine. <laughs> so so I went to film school. Um, and I always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker and but I always I mean, knew I was going to film school. No, but no, I mean I know you go okay, so you go to film school soon. But all of that that went before totally that was your that was your kind of your breeding ground for being a filmmaker. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I spent my life training to be a filmmaker, I just didn't know it. I mean like and you know, learning music and playing playing piano and doing all that drama and all that. yeah, it was all just reading all those books, being coming obsessed with story, wanting going into Foyle's bookstore and at that stage I thought, well maybe I want to be a writer, because remember I hadn't thought I wanted to be a filmmaker yet, I didn't that I thought oh, I'd be a writer. And then seeing this voluminous bookstore with hundreds of thousands of incredible books and I was going, I'm going to write something. But all that's here is piles and piles and piles of books and I can't just add another book to the pile because that's not meaningful. Yeah. What's meaningful yeah. is to start another pile. <laughs> start my own, but you know, like I have to do something that's going to be so different from all this other stuff that it's going to matter, that it's going to resonate on something. Like, because there's so many brilliant minds here, all captured in this building. I have to do something that's. If you're going to add to it. I'm going to add to it. Yeah. Exactly. I'm not just going to put another thing on the pile. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was kind of instructive in that way too. But it's interesting that. Writing, being a writer, was something you considered an entertainer, but not a filmmaker. Yeah, because you could kind of do that, like you know, you just need a pen and patience. So, <laughs> you had made, like you had been, you you just made films when you were six years old. As yeah, well. like it's not that you yeah. were that either. No, totally. But films for me were still Hollywood. I think, like, I mean, I, it's like, it's it was. See, I, I, okay, it's, sorry, what were you saying? No, it's just, it sounds like, you know, you know the way you do that thing where the one thing you want to do or the one thing you need to do is the one thing you avoid. Yeah. So I don't know, yeah, I don't know. The one, the one thing that you need to do, you avoid? Yeah. Is it because it's too scary or? I don't know. I interviewed Ross Whitaker a few weeks ago and he said this thing that the obstacle is the way. <laughs> that's good yeah yeah, yeah. yeah the know. obstacle is yeah, the way the that's it the, <laughs> the obstacle is the way yeah. that's good anyway sorry. I like that no 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 that's nice it was it was good yeah, he, yeah. yeah. it was um, um, so film school yeah. um, so you went to Dunleary went to Dunleary okay was that good it was fantastic okay. yeah it was brilliant I mean um, the, the, like we had um, really passionate teachers but the main thing I think the really strength of it was they were 
they got they they had a pretty intense selection process. So by the time you got in there, you felt like, man, I kind of worked pretty hard to get in here, and you were with other people who were equally mentally deranged and <laughs> wanted to spend all their time making films with you. So it was like, woo, great! Oh, there's other crackpots. Great, let's do it. No, was it like was it amazing to? Be there and to, to make that decision and to be within this yeah. world. Like, oh, yeah, like just having done years and years of academia yeah, yeah. and then and like a pretty high level and then kind of going, oh my God, I'm going to spend the next two years and what I'm going to be doing is making films, watching films, talking about mm -hmm. films, studying films, eating, sleeping and shooting films. Oh yeah, <laughs> come home. <laughs> you know, it's so nice. It's a really nice sensation, yeah. you know, to, yeah. to do that, and, and and then to find people who are just all in the same way, and then like another thing that happened that was quite strange was like, um, like when I was in boarding school at thirteen, um, probably my best friend at boarding school was Ken Warburton. Oh um, wow! Yeah. Wow. So when I went to hey, London, yeah, when I went to London, and I broke up with my girlfriend in London, I ended up living uh, with Ken at the time in London. We lived together for a year. So what did you... Get in film school? Yeah, yeah, like, or, yeah, what was, what was it like, or how did it prepare you for what came after, or... Well, it prepared me because we worked really hard and we were able to devote all our time to making films. Okay. Um, I, because I had already done a degree, I had to pay my way through film school, so I went, I got a job in the Irish Independent. Oh, okay. And I worked 20 hours a week, part-time, in the Irish okay. Independent. Okay. I did advertising for them, so I actually was if you were phoning in an ad at the time, I was the guy on the end of the line who took the ad. And I used to take death notices as well. All these jobs that have disappeared because we don't phone in exactly. ads anymore. Mm. Yeah. It was yeah. my bread and butter. It paid me, paid yeah. me through film school. Um, and did you get funny ads? Were there? Oh yeah, it's pretty, yeah. Like I mean, you'd get the romantic ads from these owl fellas and stuff. Like it was so cute. Yeah. Farmers. Yeah. yeah. It was really nice. And people trying to sell things, you know, what? You know, it was, it was really funny, it was really funny. And then there were so many characters that it bring in. It was, it was a really nice job. And then the, the people who I worked with in the ad department, was, um, it was only two guys at the time, Tony and myself, and then there was like maybe like 25 or 30 women. Um, but it was a really, really nice group of, of people. Okay. They were fantastic. And I learned a lot from them too. I mean, yeah. just because, you know, on a Sunday you go in and there's kind of quiet spells and you end up in these mad long conversations about, or, you know, or, or even between between ads or you know just over lunch break and stuff just you know they're just you know really interesting people so yeah so um, from film school um, I went in thought I wanted to be a writer director probably because I wrote and um, I ended up directing quite a bit of stuff in college and then Anne O'Leary who's just retired the other day from the as head of the National Film School and um, I was just at her, her retirement party the other evening she said to me one day, she said, you know, your photographs when you did the application form were amazing. You should also look at doing cinematography as well. She said, okay. do the writing and directing, but, you know, learn this other craft. And I, to be honest with you, I was in first year, I didn't even know what cinematography was. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to learn something else, I mean, cinematography seems like a good idea. Mm -hmm. So, um, so uh, I, I just was desperate to get on set. I'd never been on the set of a film. I had no idea what filmmaking was. Just no clue. Which is so funny having been so consumed by it. For yeah, totally. I had no clue. I was yeah. terrified. Yeah. Well. Oh my God. I remember having to do a scene. Like the first project we got in class, I was like, they said, I, I signed up and I was like, okay. I remember I signed up to be cinematographer. And I was like, Jesus, I didn't even know what it is. <laughs> 
and they were like, and and I was we hadn't it was so early in the course that I hadn't even touched the light, and I was so terrified. I was gone. I went down to the store and I checked out a light, just to see how to plug it in and turn it on and how to adjust it. And <laughs> it's like, and then I was like, okay, now I'm ready to light the first thing. It was like literally it was that bad, but um yeah, it was kind of interesting. And then um so yeah, I owe on the the exploration of cinematography and then I, I kind of got more into it and what happened was I signed up to be a boom op on a film and the person who was recording sound said to me have you ever boom oped before and I said I've never been on a film set before it's my first time and she goes well you're not holding my boom and I was like okay so she wouldn't let me hold the boom so I just took I was so desperate to impress and she's like you can take notes I was like okay so I and I'm pretty fastidious so I took these incredibly beautiful notes like really nicely and every detail she wanted I was like oh really nice but I was incredibly bored and then um, <clears throat> but I was getting on the film set so I began to see I was being made and at the time um, Tom Comerford who was two years ahead of me who's a cinematographer and um, he would have shot Savage and he shoot stuff for Brendan Muldowney oh um, yeah so he was two years ahead of me in college and um, he was shooting the film this was a short film in college and uh, they were understaffed and they were just trying to get stuff done and I remember they were moving boxes and I knew they were stuck and I was just writing all these notes and I had all my notes done so I just started moving boxes and I said Gina and they were like yeah so I just moved the boxes and then every time they were stuck I just helped them move the boxes like boxes of lights like, can I move I was, didn't even know can I touch this is this okay can I move this and I just moved stuff for them. and I kind of did that quietly just helping out when I could yeah. and then um, at the end of it he said to me thanks very much for that busy I was happy to help out and then before the next shoot he came up to me and said do you want to be a trainee on the next thing I do <laughs> I was like brilliant so I got a year of being a trainee with Tom Comerford who's a brilliant cinematographer and I learned an awful lot from watching Tom and what is cinematography you <coughs> define it in a sense <coughs> <coughs> what is cinematography cinematography is cinematography is um showing you the story that's what cinematography is it's showing you the story so I can tell you the story and you can hear all the information but showing it to you allows you to feel it from, from how the visuals are and it gives you a more immediate access because it's visual so it, it's kind of trying to find a way to visualise the narrative so that you can be I would say emotionally connected to it so that you can emotionally you can feel the story okay. it's kind of more about feeling I think than seeing and within that then so because acting maybe is also showing you the story yeah so what what are your um what are the, the well, elements? Well, the things you can control in cinematography. I mean, like, there's no neutral position. I mean, well, I suppose if you were to say, what's a neutral position? If I'm sitting in front of you and looking directly at you, that feels quite neutral, you know? Yeah. If, you, if, if, if you turn your back on me, then I'm behind you and I'm not neutral. I'm seeing you from behind. If I'm to the side of you, I'm seeing you in a different way. So it's kind of deciding how the audience are going to see the story. Right, okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so 
Point of view. Point of view. Okay. Uh, but so point of view, but also um, how you're lit in this room now is there's a there's four um, tungsten lamps over your head and they're kind of evenly lighting you and evenly lighting the wall behind. Um, but it gives a mood to the room. Um, and to me, I would say it feels quite honest, the room, because everything's quite evenly lit. So if I come into this interview, it feels like quite an honest sort of a space or something. You know what I mean? Like spaces, I, I kind of react to physical spaces. I, I'm not mad about doing stuff on set. I'm sorry, like building sets. I don't, I, I don't like perfectly constructed things okay. for... for to sh I like the mess. Okay. I think the mess and the, the kind of... like You can see the way the paint is chipped here. If you get somebody to, to, to try and build this room, they won't paint, chip the paint there like that. That's, but that's because that's where people's elbows are. And that feels lived into me. Okay. You know, when yeah. people sit down at the end of that table and see that it's at the height of the chair, so the chairs rub off that place. And there's bits of the table that are dirtier and more worn than others, just because that's where people's elbows are. And that kind of texture that you get off things... Um, off a space like how you experience it when you walk into that space um, I think a big part of cinematography is trying to let the audience feel what you feel when you walk into the space okay. and feel what you feel when you watch those actors deliver that performance and feel what you feel when an explosion happens or you know it's, so I, trying to connect with the emotion of it always rather than just I, I always think if you're walking in to shoot a film and you can put the camera anywhere and you can light it any way you want, then you're in really big trouble. Because you haven't you don't know what you're trying to do. Because you're not just trying to film it, you're trying to communicate something. So you have to be kind of clear on what you're trying to communicate. So where is your starting point then? Um like is is it Script or is it it's the script, yeah. It's the script in, in drama. It's the script for sure, for sure. And then it's and then it's you like as a as a it, if you're as a director or if you're the cinematographer and you come on, you you really try and I, I, it's like trying to tune into a frequency first of all of the script and then of the director or if you're directing yourself to find what your frequency is on it. You know that like for the, the the actual physical starting point can be very different. I mean, I did a film with uh, Ken Wardrop and we had done a lot of short films together um, and we did a series of short films for Channel 4 and we did uh, Ken's graduate film called Undressing My Mother um, and when we came to do a film his and hers again we just we, we gathered a lot of photographs and we kind of Ken had told me what he was trying to do and, and Kate, Kate shot it with me, she was a cinematographer on it with me, Kate McCullough. Um, but Ken, was, Ken knew what he was trying to do, and then we tried to find images that communicated some of that. You know, communicated. Kind of had a quality. Had a quality, kind of yeah. It's a little bit imprecise because sometimes you can't find the right words, but you can always find the right picture. <laughs> you know? Or you can, or you can find. In the way that you understand, <coughs> say, a song, but you can't really articulate that, but you understand this through a kind of a, a feeling. A f yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's what it comes down to, is those kind of feelings and this kind of intangible type stuff. So you can, you can even find a photograph and you say, it's not the whole photograph, but do you see how the way the person's standing in the corner of the room there, that's the right energy. 
and, and you know, you'd show, maybe show that to Ken and Ken, well, yeah, yeah, that's the right energy. And you say, you see, I found this one, see this doorway, or see this table, or see this, whatever, you know, and you kind of just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about what you're responding to in these images. And we'd spend a day maybe at the National Film School just gathering, gathering, gathering images and talking about them and building them up and kind of, um, yeah, just, just going through that process and just kind of finding a vision for it so that, because you can talk about it academically in words, but having these kind of images really helps as a cinematographer to kind of find how you see the thing and, how the, and that you can share that with, with the other members of the team. So then, so, okay, so that happens... And then, and then what? Well, well, I mean, it's, obviously it's different for every film. So, for example, I did another film with uh, Terry McMahon called um, uh, Patrick's Day. And we, I said to Terry, I found this, what uh, uh, usually helps me is to go to and look at these pictures. Okay. So we went and did that. But Terry had written a script himself, a brilliant script. And it was like, okay, um, he had a couple of films in mind that he thought, okay, it's kind of, little bit of the energy of say one flew over the cuckoo's nest for patrick's day or a little bit the energy of punch punch glove you know this kind of little bit messy chaotic um a little bit stylized in places and not just kitchen sink drama type stuff you know kind of odd um and a little bit of odd framing and just kind of just some of the kind of things and we just watched those films together um and uh then it, you just watch those films together and you just talk and talk and talk and talk about the script and Terry's really big on theme and I think it's uh, I mean I've learnt a lot from Terry from working with him and a lot from most of the directors that I've worked with from all actually all the directors to be honest um, but yeah on like Terry would be really big on theme and he's like what's this, what's this film really about and when you start digging down into what's really going on then you try and shoot what's really going on and the story handles itself in a way, do you know? Yeah. You try and you try and capture a, a kind of a bit of a deeper essence or something, and you just hope that it, it somehow washes over, like that it, it somehow percolates through people. So in a way, like if you say if you watched Patrick's Day without the actors, um, from a cinematography point of view, um. Oh my god, what a terrible thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Should you still get it? Yeah. I mean, if there's I mean. no no, I mean it's it's a story about people. So if I mean, I, the, there's no point being a cinematographer without okay. people as far as I'm not without people, but I mean in a human story. But in terms of the quality or the tone Yeah, I mean you should well, I mean if they didn't t see what I, I, I maybe a clear way to do, I mean Owen Harris who was a who's a great lecturer at the National Film School uh, in screenwriting. Um, he would always say, you've got to be able to write this script that when you play it to a group of Puerto Ricans who don't speak any English, they watch the film, they totally understand what's going on, even though they haven't heard a word that anybody said, but they completely understand every scene. And, and I think it's a pretty good rule of thumb that like, if you watch people interacting, even though you don't know exactly what's going on, you, you feel it and you, and you kind of know it. So like with Patrick's Day, for example, I mean, it's, some of it's planned and some of it's not planned, you know, like we, we storyboarded the entire movie, but I would say at the same time, there were decisions made on set that were completely spontaneous and completely free such within as. that. Such as we came up on the first day and we were doing one of the first few shots and we were looking at two different, the room was limited in its size. So for the type of shot we needed, there was only two lenses available to us. 
and we looked at the two lenses and Terry and I looked at each other and said, do you want it back here on a longer lens that will feel like this or do you want to shoot, will we shoot it up closer on this wider lens that's a little bit distorted and a little bit weirder but probably not as pretty. And we kind of looked at each other and kind of almost without saying, we both went, yeah, we're going to go on that lens, which was the uglier one. Okay. <laughs> um, and we're like, yeah, yeah, it just feels right, I don't know. And then I would say I shot almost the first half of the film on that lens. Now, the thing that happened was that Patrick and his mother, it was a 24mm lens. And the 24mm lens, if you're shooting anamorphic aspect ratio on a, on a spherical lens, which was what we were doing, um, it's quite a wide lens. Mm. And to get a head and shoulder two shot means that if I'm standing, if I'm across the table from you, this is a comfortable distance to have a conversation. Now, if I get up from my chair and I come over here, this becomes a more intimate conversation. And if I move to here, it becomes maybe slightly uncomfortable because I'm a little bit too close to you and it's, it kind of doesn't seem appropriate for the conversation we're having. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So what happened was, if you put on that lens to get a nice two-shot, you have to get kind of uncomfortably close to the people. And... That was actually the relationship with Patrick and his mother. So every time I would film Patrick and his mother, the crew would just go, the, 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 camera, the, the, the camera team would just go, oh, I'm 24 mm And I didn't decide that in advance, but it, 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 I kind of kept doing it for the first few days, and then after a while it became this running joke, of like, oh my God, I'm going to this whole film on, on the same lens. And actually what happened is... And is that unusual? You're, you're shooting a whole film. No, no, his and hers was shot on almost two lenses. Three, three possibly. We think we shot, we used a third lens. Um, I, I like to be really disciplined in that. I mean, different people are different things. I, I, I like to just use a really limited range of lenses. I, I, I know people get kits with like 16 lenses and stuff. I, I, I mean, probably because I trained on four, I like to work with. If I could shoot a film on one, I'd do it. <laughs> you know, it depends on the film. Depends on the film, obviously. But um, I think um, if you keep swapping around lenses, you're kind of just jumping people in and out. It's a different. It's a different style. I think just my style is very simpl simplistic, and it's like if you get into a vibe of looking at the world in a certain way, then that's the way you're looking at the world. So we're able to show Patrick and his mother in this relationship and every time I filmed it, I mean the actress, I mean Kerry Fox is an incredible actress, um, you know, she's in An Angel at My Table, which is an incredible, incredible film and she's fantastic and then suddenly you're on set with her and she's looking at you going, you're really close to me with the camera, can you back off a little bit? And I was like right in on top of them and like it takes incredible actors to let your, to let the cameraman pin here and camera stuck up against their noses and not be irritated but they got really used to me and they just let me float around them and get stuck in on their faces. So that being, like, when I watch it, I'm kind of like, it's that thing of kind of, you're watching the film and you know the way they always say, oh, you try and get the audience to lean in. Patrick's Day, I think, in that relationship between the mother and the, and the, and the son makes you kind of want to lean back a little bit. You feel like, oh, I'm a bit too, this is a bit too, they're uncomfortably close and I'm uncomfortably close to watching them. It's like, 
it puts you in that space, and that's the kind of feeling that I felt of the relationship. Now, it wasn't a logical decision. We discussed it, and we talked about it, and we knew from all our lengthy discussions. I mean, Terry and I took three days, went down the country to a hotel, drank copious bottles of wine, and talked about the film, talked about the film, talked about the film. We're supposed to come back with a storyboard, or at least a shot list, and came back with nothing. But we knew exactly what we were trying to do with the film. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So we had all those discussions, so we knew what we were trying to do. We weren't always clear about how exactly we were going to do it, but when we saw, we're like, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's the one. And then... So you, you two had a really... You clicked in oh, relationship totally. that you just kind of... You were both from the... Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, it really... I mean, Terry was so... Terry, I mean, like... Uh, like Terry's so smart, mm -hmm. you know? He's a, he, like, and he, he really knew what he wanted to do. And when you've got that, and... Then you're just kind of buzzing off this energy and you just get this bouncy energy. Like, oh, we can try this, we can do that, we can do that. And it's not like, no, no, we won't do that, no, we won't do this. It's like, okay, try it, try it, try it. Okay, it's not working. Okay, try it, okay, okay. And it's kind of quite playful. And I think just have, like, because that's the kind of spirit I made films at six years old, you know, it's like play and you find things. So with this case, of, with like Patrick's <coughs> mother, and you're kind of mirroring the quality of it to the technicality. Yeah, well. that's it. So, so you're, you're, you're shooting the emotions. You know, you're you're capturing the, the the quality of the relationship in how you're filming it. And how how? Now that's for that film. I don't know. I probably haven't done enough films to be able to give you really good answers to these questions. No, but I mean that's <laughs> that's fascinating because it's like how how big a part does like just the physical environment then play in it in terms of of you working off that well that's for me it's massive i mean like so would you would you go like like scouting or oh yeah yeah i mean totally i i like i do an awful lot of scouting and i love it and i, I, I for me it's so important i mean if you get the right space you can do so much you know because it just gives you a kind of energy even the actors walk into the space and you light it in a certain way and it's like you're in the movie you know you've the, created the mood and I love I know a lot of people would kind of like maybe overlight a scene and then say yeah we're going to grade it this way and stuff I, I'm not I, I don't know if I have the technical expertise to do that mm -hmm. I, I just light it like I want it to look <laughs> I shoot it's it very <laughs> it's very instinctive it's very instinctive yeah so and I try and I pretty much light it like it's going to look like it's not going to look much different in the cinema than what I light it um, and are there certain environments like that you really like in terms of messy ones now I don't mean messy as in uh, like stuff all over the place but I mean yeah, like undone and chipped wallpaper and uh, torn wallpaper and dirt like texture I love human I love texture I love the human I love feeling humans have been in a space like I went to a boarding school that was, was from 1860 and the stairs were all worn in little in little bends and there were stone stairs but you knew that thousands hundreds and thousands of little feet had gone up those stairs for hundreds of years and it was and I just love that kind of stuff you know just the worn the worn and I, you, you know it's in stone and you see this worn little place where little feet have gone yeah, 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 yeah. I, I love that and what about then like, and nature of course yes is there a, is outdoor indoor is there are there certain are there certain parts of the country um, I mean like one thing that always kind of see I mean It's funny because you could kind of say, you know, I mean, um, I think in a way beauty is a bit cheap. 
um, like if you give me a beautiful landscape and I take a picture of it and go, okay, so that's that's really nice. But I mean, and it's it's really powerful at certain times. But there's kind of a a beauty in ugliness or a beauty in the kind of things we don't look at. And I think that's a big job of the filmmaker because we are a culture obsessed with beauty and obsessed with the kind of conventions of beauty. And um, it's really nice in a film if you can take an audience outside their conventional notion of beauty and show them something that's beautiful, that they find beautiful, um, in something really simple or in something really basic or in something really ordinary. I mean, I think that's quite a lot of his and hers or, or undressing my mother, you know, would be kind of, these are just ordinary people in ordinary homes. Can you know? But um, uh, then he went to home on weekends and he did the interview, and it's just a voice interview. And um, he just came back and he played it to me, and I cried like a baby, and it was just so powerful. This like maybe one hour, two hour interview, I think, or maybe it was an hour interview. And in the end, the film is like four minutes because I mean, I remember hearing it going, okay, but that has to be the last line in the movie because there's a there's a line that she says in the interview that's like so powerful. Like, okay, that has to be the last line. In the movie. And then Ken constructed the, the audio thing, working towards that moment. And then we knew kind of roughly what the audio was going to be, um, about a woman talking about her body. But we had to try and break down, how are you going to see this body? Okay. And, and what we kind of felt was, okay, so it's a woman in her mid to late, her late 70s, I think at the time, mid, mid to late 70s, mid 70s, I think it was at the time. Um, and she was, you know, overweight um, and you're kind of saying but she felt loved and she felt very beautiful and we're kind of going well, we kind of want to honour that so how do you show an over 70 year old well, maybe overweight woman and make an audience feel that it's beautiful And because that's the emotion right and what we'd say might be the, the truth might be something else but what's the truth you know it's like how you see it is the truth, and how you feel about it is the truth. So we kind of wanted, so, and then Ken had this great idea of like, um, well, I, I, I don't want the audience to see it all, I want them to kind of piece it together. And we were like, okay, so it's like a jigsaw. Um, and we'll never show the whole thing, because what happened was it started off where we just kind of had these fragmentary pictures, and then we're like, okay, the fragmentary pictures seem to be the way to go, and then from that it grew to be, well, let's just do it all in fragmentary pictures, and you never see the whole thing. So the audience have to piece the whole together in their own minds. And that became a kind of a metaphor. And then we had a guiding principle of how to shoot the film. 
because it started out with like, well, she's going to talk about her feet, and she's going to talk about her boobs, and she's going to talk about her elbows, and she's going to talk about her back, and she's going to talk about her eyes, and she's going to talk about her nose, and she's going to talk about her ass, you know, and 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 so then we do shots of those things, but we all be broken and fragmented so that the audience pieced together and then we thought if we make each of the elements beautiful and they piece together these broken fragmented elements you end up with a beautiful overall picture that is constructed in your own mind that was kind of the theory behind it I mean it's funny talking about some of these theories because a lot of it you do have in advance but you have a clear idea of what you're doing afterwards when you start talking about it so you're asking okay what's what's that like in, in, in comparison to cinematography or what do you do? Um, yeah, directing. Um, I guess I, I've I've only mo I've only really directed things that I've written, okay. so it's all been intensely personal stuff. Um, and I write everything from dreams. So I'll have a dream and I wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be like, "What the fuck?" And I'll write that down. Okay. And then maybe I'll kind of be in half conscious state and I'll keep going oh and then this or this and it kind of and usually an image will stay with me and I and it'll hit me in a really powerful way and I won't understand it and then making the film or writing the film and certainly directing the film is an exploration of what's this about so I don't know what I'm doing this is the groping you know towards some sort of understanding okay. um, you know so I, a film I did after I left college was called um, Out of the Blue and it's a um, it was a film sponsored by Filmbase, and it's about a man who's walking down the beach and he finds a television set floating in the sea, and he brings it home and plugs it in, it doesn't work, and then gives it a kick and uh, it starts to fill up with water, and then um, he looks into it more deeply and there's fish swimming around in it, and then he sees there's a mermaid, and she swims up right to the front of the screen and then looks out at him. So there's this mermaid trapped in a television set. And then he's kind of overweight, single guy, like forty something, and he and bald, and he he uh, he uh, starts bringing the television on dates with him. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what's it about? <laughs> what's it about? What's oh, the, what's, what are you? What's the? Um, What, if, what, what would you hope people take away from seeing that thing? I don't know. It's really funny because I, I kind of... Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really funny about answering this now because I'm kind of going, you know... It's one of those ones, and it's such a kind of an odd journey to try and uncover what you're trying to say. And then you kind of... Yeah, it's like, uh, and kind of it comes to a point where kind of if you want to dig into that level, it's like if I go and explain to you what a Van Morrison song is about. Now, I'm not saying my film is anything as good as a Van Morrison song, but you know, it's, it's up hopefully to you, it's rich yeah. enough that okay. you can take what you want from it. Yeah, I wouldn't like to yeah. prescribe or, or say this is what it's about, because maybe, for some, I mean, it, if it's really good, then it opens up a lot of possibilities yeah. rather than closing it down yeah. to one. Yeah, no, yeah. We probably shouldn't even be trying to... Just, you make it and you let it out. Yeah, but I mean, sometimes it's probably useful, and I know I do it all the time. What's happened with that? What's happened? You know, but um, with your own work, I think um, you do it kind of with your collaborators as you're trying to understand it. Um, and then once it's done, I think hopefully it speaks for itself. <laughs>